0: I remember vividly remember the day where I had been picking this guy up from the rehab just to take him to meetings. And I just hated it, man. I didn't want to help anybody. I had no interest in any of this stuff and I was doing it because they told me to do it. And then I had this change, this massive change where I woke up one day and I was like, I can't wait to hear about that guy's life. And it never went away. And, and so Find somebody that is, has what you want.
1: Welcome to another episode of Thriving in Recovery. I'm your host, Bryce Givens, joined by my co-host, Justin Harris. Thriving in Recovery is dedicated to sharing stories of recovered and thriving individuals to empower others on their own path of recovery. Today's guest is Cody Gardner. Cody shares the story of his world travels, connecting to his spiritual self, and how he began serving others on the journey of recovery. Through his experiences, Cody found that recovery has added happiness and joy to his life. Living by his motto, good things are coming, Cody has been in recovery since 2006 and has worked in the treatment industry for over 15 years. Cody now helps others in the recovery process by consulting for treatment centers all across the nation. On a side note, Cody has consulted with me on opening a licensed outpatient treatment center here in Denver called True North Recovery Services. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. He's a wealth of knowledge and an absolute beautiful human being. What's up? Welcome to another episode of Thriving in Recovery. This is Bryce Givens back again with Justin Harris and our good friend, Cody Gardner. Uh, What's up, Cody? How are you, man?
0: Hey, gentlemen. Glad Glad to be here.
1: Well we're glad to have you. Um so just to to preface this conversation um before we start so Cody and I know each other we're both in the industry Cody is um helping me uh, open up a treatment center as we speak and he is a wealth of knowledge and I consider him a friend and he is is awesome and I'm super excited to learn more about you and hear your story. Um let me start off with a rapid fire question. What
0: is recovery to you? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I immediately go back to a question that I'm going to rephrase a little bit, but when is somebody in recovery? And my answer to that is when they say they are, uh, substance use disorders, alcoholism, addiction, all these different words that we throw into the mix. Um, most of them are self, a self-diagnosed term. Right. Only I can say I have an alcohol problem. I mean, a doctor can tell me, he can give me a diagnosis and all that. Uh, but, but really, if I want to change my life, I have to believe that I have that problem. And so, uh, same goes for recovery, right? I'm in recovery when I say I'm in recovery. And the quality of my recovery we can talk about, but, uh, but I do think someone is in recovery from a technical sense when they have uh, made a decision to uh, improve the quality of their life and their relationships with substances. I'm not going to say that it contains abstinence. Uh, I do think it has a lot to do with quality of life. Now, for me, I have some different personal beliefs in my sobriety, but, uh, but we'll talk about those, I would assume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that. So, I, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, give us a little background about your recovery, like how you got into recovery and what that looked like and uh, a little bit about your personal journey.
0: Sure, sure. Um, without going too far into it, I got sober on September 22nd of 2006. I walked into a treatment center in upstate Connecticut after walking out of a couple of treatment centers from the weeks prior to that. Um Uh, The short story here is that at the age of, oh, I don't know, 11 years old, I uh, started playing with alcohol and substances. It's gone on my family for multiple generations, I can trace it back on both sides. And at the age of 12 and 13, I started, quote, unquote, experimenting. And about a year later, I was getting kicked out of uh, freshman year of high school. I had a 1.2 GPA and my mother took me to the doctor and he said, you have ADD. And they gave me a bunch of uh, amphetamines and I took speed for a number of years. And what started to happen was I started wanting to come off of the speed in the evenings. And so I was upping my use of substances. Um, uh, 17 years old, a very good friend of mine got into a boating accident and they gave him an unlimited prescription of Percocets for about seven months. He ended up getting a felony because he gave it the Percocets to a lot of us, but we took them every single day. Uh, we smoked pot every single day. We lived our lives. That was our goal. I, I have two little kids now and I start to think about the high school experience and uh, I didn't care about any of the the, the positive at, events and activities. I I played sports, but it was more of a way to keep keep appearances up and I was decent at it. So, so it helped. I I will say um, I took whatever I could get. I got in trouble. I have had all sorts of adverse experiences. I'll never forget the night we got arrested at 17 years old. And it's five o'clock in the morning and my parents had to come get me at the police station and we they showed up and they took the car home and everybody said, we'll talk about it in the morning. And I went back down to the car that had been searched by the police to find the drugs and booze that I had left in the car hidden that the cops didn't find. And I went back into my room. did more of them and that's not normal i didn't know that at the time that's not normal 17 year old kid gets arrested put in handcuffs usually they just go home and sleep it off and they figure it out in the morning Uh, i needed more and so fast forward to college i was part of the first wave of oxycontin we did cocaine for nine months then oxycontin came around um, and i got heavily 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 addicted to oxycontin and then heroin in 2002 2003 um Man, there's a story here. In 2003, I went home to my mother's house for Thanksgiving and I said, I have a problem. I need to talk about it. And she said, did you get somebody pregnant? And I was like, well, no, <laughs> but I'm heavily addicted to heroin. And uh, and they did the best they could do. She drove me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the following morning, and I ended up getting on Suboxone. This was before Suboxone was uh, widely available in America. This was the early 2000s. I got it in a clinic. Um, But I started going to AA and I started meeting people and I started having this experience of, of first it was defensiveness. And then ultimately it became sort of interest in who these people were. And I wasn't staying sober. I was still drinking, smoking pot every single day. I was taking Suboxone. My life got better, but it was not improving in the way that it needed to, um, And so ultimately, I think as happens with most people on Suboxone, I stopped taking it and I went out and I got high. I went on the long run for uh, another year or so. Uh, Well, I guess three years at that point, 2003 to 2006. And oh, man, I think what that experience showed me in retrospect was I couldn't do it halfway. I couldn't just smoke pot. I couldn't just drink on the weekends. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out some way around doing the work that those people at AA kept talking about. And so finally, in 2006, my mother found out that I had stolen some money from her and she kicked me out of her house. And three days later, I ended up in a treatment center. And um, I wish I could say I got sober then. That was September 4th of 2006. I got out of that treatment center on September 15th and I went and I drank for the end. I had no more heroin. I was physically detoxed off of heroin. I was sleeping on a friend's couch. I walked out of a treatment center. The term they use is AMA against medical advice. I pawned my watch to a cab driver to get to the other side of Long Island and then hopped the turnstile at the ferry and got on the ferry back to Connecticut. And uh, I went straight for booze. And I knew it. I knew that's what I was going to do. That was the plan the entire time. And finally, a couple of days later, um, my mother called me over and she said, I don't know why you can't stop but you can't come around here anymore. And they changed the locks and the doors. And I, a couple of days later realized I still had health insurance. This was before health insurance, widely covered treatment, but it did cover detox. And so I went to a really, really, really fantastic detox center and, um, went from there to treatment. There's a longer story there. It doesn't matter. I ended up in treatment. I ended up pissed off, angry, uh, didn't know what I was doing. Um, but it was a comfortable place in upstate Connecticut. And about a week into this experience, I got into a, it wasn't an altercation. We were screwing around in the lobby and I I, I got, I, I took a step backwards and I hit a door and the door opened and it was like out of a movie. I'll never forget it. And this guy, this six foot two guy opened the door with these big old hands and he looks at me and he says, I don't know where you're gonna go, but you better go somewhere away from here. And uh, come to find out he was the executive director of the place. And um, he was doing a tour for investors or some such thing. And I said, I wanted to go apologize to him. I told my counselor, this was before they had therapists. My counselor was just somebody who was sober. Um, And I said, I want to go make amends because I had been going to AA for a while. And she said, sweetie, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Why don't you just go say sorry? And I was like, I just did. I said, I was sorry. And she was like, they're not the same thing. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. She was right. Uh, I didn't have a clue. I went down to that man's office, his name. uh, Well, that doesn't matter. Uh, His went down to his office and I said, Hey, man, I really want to say I'm sorry. And he said, Hey, man, just sit down and don't talk for a little while. Okay. And he told me his story. And he spent about 20 minutes with me and he told me um, how he had been a 22 year old kid who was living in a crack house and had nothing to, to live for anymore. And he was given a chance to stay sober and he went to treatment and he took that chance. And he told me how he had this beautiful life and a wife and kids. And you know, he was the director of a treatment center. And, and he looked right at me at the end of that. And he said, I'll tell you the secret to getting everything you've ever wanted in life, including recovery. And I said, sure. What is it? And he said, do what you're told. And I've thought about this a lot over the years. Um, I can't remember everyone ever saying do what you're told and me saying sure. Um, and at that moment I did, I said, fine, I'll do anything you tell me to do so long as I don't have to feel like this anymore. And I still can't explain that moment. And, um, and he told me what to do. He said, uh, go to meetings, get a sponsor a home group and a service position and do the 12 steps like your life depends on it. Cause it probably does. He said, stick around here, go to sober living, uh, make your bed every day, get a job, get a, uh, build a, a life of recovery, a community of people uh, stay away from the girls. That was one of his ones. Um, and, and I did, and I went back down to his office the next day and I was like, Hey man, can you just explain that to me? As if like shooting heroin was going to be a better alternative to what he was describing. Um, and he did, he took that time and he, I, I say all the time, he went above and beyond what, what he had to do. Um, little did I know he had years of professional training at that point. Years of professional training. Uh, so, long story short, I did what I was told. I stayed in a treatment community. I didn't stay in treatment. I stayed in sober living for a year. I was in treatment for 40 days. I stayed in sober living for the following year in a small town in upstate Connecticut. And then I went back to college uh, after that year. Um, I got my degree in criminal justice. That's a longer story. Um, And I moved to Colorado. That had always been my dream was to move to Colorado. So in 2009, I moved to Colorado and. um, God, I met a girl who was sober and we dated a couple of times and she said she was going to move to Israel and did I want to go? And so I did. I quit my job. I sold my car. I put my stuff in storage and I moved to Tel Aviv at about two and a half years sober. Um and israel is a fascinating place but we spent about six months there and then we traveled the world and um we saw the pope in rome we saw the dalai lama in india we uh, went to varanasi the holiest city in india we did 17 countries and 57 cities over i think it was 10 months around the world and we got engaged on an island in thailand uh and and i started to have these magical experiences right two three years sober things start happening in my life that were just out of this world. Um, Five years sober, I went to dinner with a friend. We were talking about men and trauma and recovery. um, And I walked into that dinner thinking I didn't have any trauma. And I walked out going, holy shit, I've got a lot of trauma to work on. Um, And I think that's how it works. I don't think I was ready to look at that stuff earlier. Um, But starting at about five years sober, I started going uh, to treatment every year. Uh, or really every other year, if you break it down, uh, going to a place in, in Tennessee called Onsite Workshops, where they do three to seven day workshops, uh, really focused on emotional development as it relates to recovery. Uh, and I truly believe Alcoholics Anonymous and the Twelve Steps uh, was a foundation. And then the thing that has taken me um, really farther than I would have imagined recovery could have taken me was was continuing to do that work. Um, doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes. Doesn't mean I don't have a hard life. Uh, in certain ways, right? We we all have bad days. We all have uh, crazy stuff going on. Um, and the same stuff that I was taught when I first got sober applies today. Um, I got sober with this guy. I'll tell a few more stories, then I'll be quiet, but, uh, this guy, Peter Brittingham, uh, Pete died. So I'm able to say his name, Pete, Pete got sober in, in, in the seventies in, um, in Los Angeles. And, um, he was one of two people that they, that I heard that have had a uh, successful five successful liver transplants in American history. See Pete got hepatitis C when he was 21 in Los Angeles uh, and he got sober at 22 and every five to seven years, his liver would give out. Um, and when I met Pete, he was like 28 years sober. Uh, and he was on his fourth liver, um, and this dude raced vintage Porsches and restored them for a living. Um, and Pete would say stuff like, uh, your brain's only good for tying your shoes and you ought to wear loafers kid. Uh, right. I, I tell this story every once in a while, we were sitting in a meeting one night and this kid was in there and he was bitching and moaning, complaining about his life, telling, you know, it's so bad and I'm in rehab again and everybody hates me. You know, that, 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 that and Pete says, uh, loud enough. Now, now I couldn't do this and I don't recommend people do this. This is something Pete was a special guy, but he, he whispered loud enough. He said, I think you should kill yourself. And everybody started laughing (laughs) and, uh, and, and the kid started laughing, right? The kid, he thought it was funny. And then he started talking again and he started talking about gratitude and something changed for him in that moment. Um, and that was special. I met special people when I first got sober, I had these, these, just m- magical experiences and really hard experiences. I couldn't talk to a woman for like a year sober. I just, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't muster the self-confidence or whatever that it would take. Um, so let's see. So I, on September 22nd, I celebrated 16 years sober. Uh, I have a wife who's also a decade plus in sobriety. I have two little kids, um, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old girl. Uh, I have studied Buddhism. I have traveled the world. I have seen the Dalai Lama. I have studied Judaism and Kabbalah and Sufism. Um, we have uh, we have tried to expand and grow our spiritual and emotional lives. Uh, I tell a lot of young kids that, that I got to see behind the curtain at a young age. I got to ask questions that seemed to be really, really important. Um, and I, 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 I didn't have the chance The way many people do to wait until they're 40 and lose everything. I lost everything in my early, early 20s. Some people think that I'm crazy for saying this, but heroin was the single greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Actually, um, it brought me to my knees at the age of 23 years old. And I don't think that would have happened. Um, just by happenstance, I think I would have led a pretty mediocre life. Um, So over the last 10 years, I started working in the substance use treatment industry. Well, really, right when I got sober, I worked in group homes for a couple of years. I became a probation officer for about five years. I worked in drug court. I never told anybody I was sober. I wanted to learn how to help people uh, technically. I wanted to learn the technical trainable skills. Uh, And then I started opening treatment centers. And I have opened, operated, managed, been fired from... Uh, consulted on uh, over 35 treatment centers around America. I've been privileged to see about 800 treatment centers around the country, um, and I get to see people get sober every day. The last thing I'll say uh, about this whole ev- process of getting sober is is that I I consult with treatment centers now, so I, I work with them, and I see these kids. They come in, and they they're they're the the administrative technicians. These are the young kids that collect the pee. You know, they're not they don't have glamorous jobs in the treatment center, and they when I'm talking to them, they'll tell me how great it is to see this success. And that's what they'll say, right? Like, this is the thing that keeps me going is that these people are getting better. And, um, if, if they're in their first year working in that treatment center, I won't say anything to them, but if they're more than a year in, I start to have this discussion with them where I say, Hey, I have a list of 59 uh, names in a book, uh, in my desk. And those are the names of the people that I've been friends with, worked with, um, treated, uh, that I've heard of that have died since I started doing this 16 years ago. Um, people don't always get better. There are untreatable forms of cancer and there are absolutely untreatable forms of substance use. But the, the true honor, uh, privilege of a lifetime, the, the thing that gets me up in the morning, candidly, is to sit in a room with somebody, you know, a 50-year-old guy. Who's never told anyone the stuff he's telling me, right? He's sobbing because his marriage is falling apart. He's struggling because he's lying to his kids about his drug or alcohol use. Uh, the mothers that are, that are so ashamed of themselves and the, and I get to see these people in, in their most vulnerable, um, the worst moment of their life. The moment when my mother asked me, she said, why can't you stop? And I looked at her, I said, because this is all I'll ever be. So let me die. Write me off. And uh, and I get to meet with these people and I've never met them. I met them 20 minutes ago and now they're crying in front of me. That is the privilege of a lifetime to get to be there, to experience that moment for people. I can't tell if anyone's going to get sober or not, but I absolutely uh, can support people's journey of recovery. So I hope that's enough of a, a decent recovery story.
1: It's fantastic. I mean, there's so much, I've known you for a while and I can't wait uh, to learn more and hear more about your travels. I didn't realize you were so well-traveled. That's amazing. Um, go into your story a little bit about India. Like what, I know you have a really strong spiritual connection uh, in your life and that is has probably uh, developed Over the last, you know, 16 years, throughout your recovery, and you've probably uncovered some amazing truths. What can you tie into your story? um, And if you can elaborate just on like some of the key points that you learned, not only in India but just like in in your travels throughout the world that are like applicable.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, Those are good questions. I um, I'll start by saying I was raised totally secular, which has been really I really think it's wonderful now Um, it makes certain things hard, but, but it, it, it lets me come at this from a, non pre-programmed space uh, my mother was jewish but she had a negative experience and so she never made us do anything uh, i knew my grandmother was jewish but i you know we go to seder dinners once in a while and uh, but we never were forced to do any type of religious training um, one way or the other i grew up with a lot of people that practice christianity catholicism um And so what happens is, is I think a lot of people, I don't think, I know a lot of people and and we get sober and and we get to this place in AA or 12 steps where they say, go out, you know, we sought, right? We go out and we seek through prayer and meditation uh, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, whatever all that means. And uh, all I knew was that it was about seeking. Um, So I remember being in that first year sober and being unable to sit still long enough. We would go to these meditation AA meetings where they would do the five-minute meditation before the meeting, and I would have to wait outside because I just couldn't sit there. Uh, I was just totally unable to, to, to participate. Um, my first job in sobriety was in the hypodermic syringe factory. Uh, I made needles every day after shooting dope for two years. It was great. Um, <laughs> you want to talk about insanity i would call my sponsor in aa uh like once a week and i'd be like hey i think i'm gonna shoot some warm water in my veins what do you think about that and he would have to talk me off the ledge right with unsanitized needles like i cared um so all right so i get sober and now you're in rehab and they make you do a little meditation then i go through that first year and at the end of the first year i start thinking you know i it's almost like peer pressure. Like you got you got to learn more of it. And so somebody gave me a, a book by Noah Levine. Uh, his book had just come out. It was called Dharma Punks with an X, and I would recommend everybody read it. Uh, Noah is a controversial figure, and yet uh, his parents were very famous Buddhist teachers. Um, and his story really resonates with people that want that are in recovery that are interested in Eastern philosophy. So I I read that book and I started meditating. And then somebody said, well, you should go to yoga because yoga is just like a moving meditation. But I was like too, you know, I don't know, self-conscious with all those, those college people doing yoga every day. And I didn't know anything about any of it. And so, I don't know, I did meditation for a year and a half. I would go to do all the 12 step spirituality stuff. And then I met this person who was a yoga teacher and I asked her to teach me yoga. And she did that a couple of times. And then I was talking to a friend of mine. And they said, you can't date your yoga teacher. And I was like, oh, all right. So I stopped asking her to teach me yoga and I asked her on a date. And this is the woman that became my wife. And so what happens? So she tells me, I'm a part of a meditation community and you need to come see it before we get together. (laughs) And so we drive from Colorado to Eastern Arizona in the middle of the desert. And she takes me to an ashram in the middle of the desert, basically. And it was profound. I found hundreds of people that were deep, deep spiritual seekers. They were asking really intense questions. And it was all led by a, a, an American who had spent 30 years on and off in a monastery in India. He was a monk. And so Jen, my wife, she says, uh, this is part of my life. And if you're going to be with me, you know, this is something I'd like to do together. And so we sign up for teachings and we started studying Buddhism. So I kind of went from the Noah Levine, Hinayana, Theravadan Buddhism, which is, um, we can talk about these terms in depth at some other point, but uh, really based out of Vietnam and Thailand and sort of Southeast Asia, Um, and I converted over to what's known as the Mahayana uh, version of Buddhism, which is more of the Tibetan Buddhist version. Long story short, we spent a bunch of time in that ashram. We, 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 we learned a lot of, I mean, technical, formal Buddhist meditation, right? If you are a nine-year-old put into a monastery in India to become a monk, you will learn an academic course for the next 20 years that'll be equivalent to a post-doctorate in uh, religion and philosophy here in America. And so we started studying with these people and we started going on meditation retreats and we started um, practicing together and then she said she was going to move to israel and i said sure uh so we moved to israel and so we how do i say this we were really into it right like we got like like we got to a point where we were studying you know 20 to 30 hours a week on our own outside of education and vocational pursuits uh, studying traditional Tibetan Buddhism or, or what we thought was traditional Tibetan Buddhism at the time. And it, and it was, um, there was some, some asterisks there that we found out later. Um, long story short is we decided to travel. And so we put together this trip that went from Israel to Europe, back to Israel, to India, um, I, I have a, a, one, probably my closest friend in recovery, a guy I was in treatment in residential treatment with 16 years ago, and we have been parallel this whole time. And just, you know, I, I am closer with him in some ways than I am with my wife. Um, and, and he is a special part of my life and a special friend. And I remember telling him at like four years sober that I wanted to go to India. And he like laughed at me and he was like, you'll never go to India. And, uh. And I texted him a picture from the top of a balcony in Varanasi, um, which is the holiest city in India. That's the city where everybody goes to die. They believe that if you die in Varanasi, you will attain moksha, which means you will not be reborn into the karmic experience of the world. Uh, you will escape that suffering. And, um man, we ended up in northern India with the Tibetan monks to go see the Dalai Lama. We studied yoga in Southern India with, you know, the people that started yoga in America. Um, We saw the Pope in Rome. We did all this stuff. Um, A couple of thoughts about that whole trip. Um, The average person in India could live their whole life with what we have in a CVS in this country. Uh, You can get food and water and medicine and tools and um, toys and other things. And it's stunning to me that we have Costco. It took me months to be able to go shop in a grocery store in America when I came home. It was just too much. It was... um, too many choices we have 19 different versions of fiber based cereals it's um it's it's crazy here compared to what they have there uh the second thing i think which you know we studied in the tibetan buddhism piece which i think becomes super interesting because we got to see it firsthand was that you know yoga um <clears throat> in america these poses that we do are not the same thing that they think of when they think of yoga in india so yoga historically has had seven parts, the seven limbs of yoga and like the lowest form or the lowest part of those parts is the stretching. Uh, and actually, like if you're in India, they say, oh, you go for a run, like you go to the gym, whatever, you just get your body strong so that you can sit in meditation for longer. Um I think the the biggest thing that we took away from that whole experience is that like if you're going to get enlightened, and and we can talk about what that means if you want, but if you're going to get enlightened, it's probably going to happen in your backyard. It's probably not. You don't have to go to India, which is what everybody says. Um, The ability to live in the moment in India is a fundamentally different experience than anything. Most Westerners have have come into to, to contact with. There are no traffic signals in India. So you just wade into traffic. You just walk across the highway with the cows and because of the poverty, they seem to have an opportunity for spirituality that we just don't have here. Um, So let me fast forward this story a little bit. Okay, we come back to America, we try some meditation retreats. um, Some controversy takes place with the group of Buddhists that we're hanging out with and somebody dies in a meditation retreat. I wasn't in that retreat. um, But but somebody dies, and it becomes very controversial. And it was in the media and all this sort of stuff. And Eastern philosophy. let's just say, number one, the fascinating parts for me is that the ideas are not that much different from Western philosophy, right? Uh, Forgive them for they know not what you, what they do is roughly the same idea as karma, right? Um, Or what they call dependent origination, right? So you have, you have these different people throughout history that are all kind of saying the same thing. And Most of these traditions were built in a time and a place, not like ours here. And, and I, I have a friend, his name is Paul. This is a good example of this. He does Native American sweat lodges. He does Lakota sweat lodges. And um, they also do something called hamblecha, which is a vision quest, right? And, and what Paul says, so the a vision quest is where you go off into the woods for four days and you don't drink any food, drink any water, eat any food. And Paul says all the time, he says, if if you don't drink any water for four days, you're going to see something. And uh, I think that's true. The other thing he says is that uh, some people come straight off the hill and they go right to the psych hospital. And so I think at an advanced stage of any world religion, whether it's Kabbalah or Sufism or uh, the the Church of Latter-day Saints or uh, a number of other, right, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantra, these are what they call um, what's it called Um, the highest way of these religions. These are all the versions of this religion, these religions and spiritual traditions that teach you that you can be enlightened in this lifetime. And I think my takeaway for some of that, not all of it, but some of it was that it wasn't made for here and now, and it can be very dangerous and you have to be very careful. And I've seen a lot of people who, they go off the deep end here, right? They they get into Kundalini yoga in early recovery, and I I joke with people that like if you do meth for seven years every day, should you really be like moving the energy around in your body after like a week sober? Like, let's just let the energy in our body settle first before we start screwing around with it. Um, I, I the last thing, or, or one of the last things I can say about this whole journey, ultimately, is that it kind of has circled back towards Judaism. Um, which is really fascinating for me. My, uh, I I didn't know, I knew obviously my family history uh, that they were Jewish, but I didn't, I never did the the religion. And so the most recent experience for me now was, was during COVID really where this came up where I had been studying Jewish history for, I don't know, the last five or seven years. I'm really interested in the Holocaust as being something profound that has happened in human history. I suspect I will teach the Holocaust at some point in my life, uh, but I, I didn't get into Judaism specifically. And during COVID, I had all this free time and I started meeting with this rabbi and I kept saying to him, hey, man, I don't need all the baggage. You could tell me I'm happy to talk it through. I just want to like people in my family said these prayers for thousands of years. I just want to say the prayers and see if it makes me a kinder person. Um, I just want to do it. The same as AA says, right? It's, it, this is about action. This is about what we do. Uh, if you said, I make a decision to go to the grocery store, we won't know if you have done that until you were on your way to the grocery store. Um, you didn't make a dec- You didn't choose anything before you just made a decision, which is not a choice. Um, that's not doing anything. And so, uh, so I started saying the prayers and my wife, we started going to services and uh, are we going to be fully Jewish? Probably not. Uh, I mean, are we, how do I say this? Are we totally 100% Jewish? Absolutely. Are we going to be observant religious Jews? I don't think so. Um, But I know I'm going to keep seeking. Uh, I know I'm going to try and tie the strings together of these ideas. Um, If your spiritual life does not make you a kinder, happier person, uh, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, Notice I didn't say it didn't work. I didn't say if, if you're not becoming a kinder, happier person, it's because your practice doesn't work. I didn't say that. I said, it's because you're doing it wrong. At its core, these practices are supposed to make us kinder, happier, less egotistical people. Um, so, uh oh, last thought, final thought. AA. AA says for... It's whole history that the only surefire way, this is the quote, the only surefire way to ensure immunity from drinking is intensive work, one alcoholic with another. The only way that I can keep this thing is if I give it away. Well, it's interesting that every world religion, every single one, every spiritual tradition I've ever seen says roughly the same thing that you have to give it away first, that you have to plant a seed in the ground that will sprout. And that is based on your actions. Uh, The second piece to this I'll say is that I've never seen and I've looked, I've never found a world religion which advocates for the casual use of substances. Uh, Even the Rastafarians aren't saying you should go to the concert and smoke pot because it's good for you spiritually. Uh, They have a they have a rite of passage. They have ceremonies. Every world religion uses these substances, uh, but they never do it casually. It's always in the pursuit of some type of emotional and personal growth. Uh, and the last thing, the final thing I'll say about all of this, which is that um, Chuck Chamberlain, one of the early members of AA, he used to say, uncover, discover, and discard. So I have to uncover those pieces of me, which are not working. I have to discover what, uh, what the opposite of those are. And then I have to discard them, right. Whether these are old beliefs or behaviors or anything else. And I think that that has been, um, little by slowly the whole process.
1: That's fantastic. I absolutely love how you just wrapped that entire story up into those three words uncover, discover, and discard. And it feels like um, through your experience and through your knowledge, you continue to do that. Um, What does enlightenment mean to you? Oh, man. Briefly, I mean, I, that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no no, 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 I got to an answer that I, could, mean, that. I know that could be a whole hour in and of itself. <laughs> that, <laughs> I know, that's I mean, out I'll, of the bag now.
0: Right. No, I'll t- I'll, listen, I spent this time with these monks, right? And I'll just tell you what the monks said, right? So, uh, this word nirvana, right? This uh, uh, this word nirvana that we use in, in Tibetan Buddhism now it's different for different forms of, of Buddhism, but in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the th- th- Savannah means mental afflictions. Uh, Nir, right, is the cessation of. Uh, and so we, we talk about the, the cessation of mental afflictions, uh, which incidentally is the same thing AA says, right? If you are bothered, it is based on your emotional state, right? That kind of stuff. Um, but this idea that says the cessation of negative emotions of negative feelings. Um, and, and so that's one way to look at it. Technically a Tibetan Buddhist would think that nirvana is part of the path to enlightenment. Um, enlightenment being something different. technically most Buddhists would say that enlightenment is the ability to take ourselves out of the cycle of rebirth that they believe in um, it, here's here's what I do there's a there's a line in yoga so there's this book called the Yoga Sutra and the first line is yoga ni, yoga citta vritti Niroda and it means the world turns toward the great mistake right our mind is turning towards a mistake. It's a mistake, right? I need money, so I take it from you. I need love, so I take it. I need oil, so we go to war. We need something, and so we think we have to go take it. But what the Eastern philosophers have said is that actually every time we give something away, every time we uh, are generous, we plant a seed in our own mind, which will later on sprout with our own uh, results, whatever those seeds are good or bad. Right. And so this basic idea that says, uh, I ask a lot of people, I say, if if, if you have a headache and you take Tylenol, does it work Bryce? If you have a headache and you take Tylenol, does it work? Sure. Every time? Not every time. No, then it doesn't work. Remember high school science cause and effect, right? You have to be able to recreate it every time. If I wear this shirt, am I going to get a date tonight with my wife? Is she going to kiss me? Well, I don't know. Right. Uh, If I show up for the job interview in a three piece suit, is it going to work? Am I going to get the job? Right. And the Buddhists will say that this whole idea is flawed. The whole thing is called the great mistake. And, and the great mistake is that I think that this Tylenol will take the headache away. I think that, uh, here's the practical example. When you have less than $50 in your bank account, are you more or less likely to be generous to somebody who's, who's begging for money? Most people are going to be less. And they say that that is the cause to then experience less money in the future for you. So what they say is uh, Noah Levine drew this comparison. He said, going against the stream of our consciousness, right. Our, our natural inclinations, my natural inclination is selfish, self-centered, dishonest, resentful, and afraid, right. These are basic human emotions. I experience, them like everybody else. And going against them is in a sense, a form of enlightenment. Right. And so, so this idea that says, can I, What if the whole world, what if the whole world said the only way to get money was to be generous with the money you had? What if the whole world said the only way to get oil was to share the oil you had? Would anyone go to war? No. Nobody would ever go to war. Uh, This monk, he used to say all the time uh, that he had somebody come to him and she said, uh, you know, uh, Geshe, I I want a boyfriend. Uh, And he would say, go to the old folks home. And she would say, well, no, I'm like 25. I don't want that kind of boyfriend. And he would say, no. Who's the lonely people in society? So go take care of them. And then you'll meet your perfect partner. And like, I'm not saying this is true. I don't know if this is true. I know Jesus talked about this. I know the Jews talk about this. I know different spiritual traditions that all talk about these ideas, but I'm not saying it's true or not. I'm just saying, what if that was true? How would we go about our lives? Right. and so I, I the, the short answer here is the cessation of negative emotions. How do I never get angry again? How do I never get jealous? How do I, right? And, and I don't know if any of that is possible, but I do think that's the goal. And I do think there are ways that you can train your mind, just like you can train your body to respond to different stimulus. Um, and then the, the bigger picture for me, understanding that I will never get to a point where I will likely be uh, unaffected by wanting things. Uh, then it's, how can I like, so what, who cares if I want, if the only way to get uh, uh, a million dollars is to give away a thousand dollars, like who loses? Like nobody lost there. Right. If that is true, I don't know if the only way to get a treatment center is to give away. If the only way to stay sober is to help somebody else stay sober right? Like, what do these ideas mean to us? Can I apply them to the, the different parts of my life? And so, uh, I think I have this continuing fear that as a businessman, I'm not going to be a good businessman. Cause I'll just give it all away. If you give me the chance, uh, If people give me the chance. I'll, I'll just give it all away. Cause I, I do kind of believe some of these things.
1: Well, I, I've heard you talk about this before. And I mean, I have thought a lot about that. And, um, I mean, your actions speak for themselves because you are such a giving person and you share, um, everything in just our experience in working together. Um, and so I have come to the same conclusion myself and I guess the, all we can do is just see what will happen. Um, but I know that this podcast wouldn't even be happening had it not been for, you, you know, that exact concept of, uh, you know, Justin, and I, Justin and I being able to meet like Justin, just a little bit of background for you, Cody, on how Justin and I met, we met at business mastery a Tony Robbins event down in Florida. Awesome. And Justin, we had these breakout groups where we had to, we had, uh, to create value, right? Those were the, that was, that was the goal to create value within the seminar. And like, they broke us out into, you know, these different, uh, groups of new people or plat members or all these different things. Well, after the first day, I had no idea what's going on. Um, and then I see all these people wearing these red shirts and they have a broken heart on it. And it says on the back mothers against addiction. And there's a big QR code. Well, long story short, Justin organized this, him and his team organized this, um, thing. And, uh, they ended up winning the event, the whole event. And it was, they raised, what did you guys raise? 76,000 bucks or 80, 70,000. Yeah. In three days, um, hmm. to fundraise. And it just alludes to exactly what you're talking about. Like giving away, uh, allows for the opportunity to receive. And I never would have, I mean, we, we, crossed paths and said hi to each other, but before, uh, he was, he, he organized that whole entire, um, that, uh, strategy to in the, in the, in the game for, for the seminar. I never would have really gone up to him and been able to like fully talk with him and communicate with him on a deeper level that led to this relationship that led to this podcast that led to you reinforcing the same exact thing that we're just talking about. Right. So giving it away in order to receive. So I think that's super powerful. I think, um, I I love that you brought up no Levine's going against the stream and just the Buddhist concept of doing that. And so my question is for somebody in early recovery, um that may be misconstrued what would your advice be to somebody who in taking that into consideration going against the stream like what would you recommend or what does that look like for somebody who's in early recovery who's trying to figure it out
0: so i said earlier on the that 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 guy right that that guy tim that i that i walked into his office that day he you know, he gave me that piece of advice. He said, do what you're told.
1: Right. Uh,
0: and I said how much I hated that. And, and you know, I've thought about that a lot over the years that that he didn't say, like, just follow Hitler off to war. Right. Uh, the, the actual line, the bigger line is find somebody that has what you want. Right. What, what, what kind of man, what kind of woman do you, you know, who, who, what kind of person do you want to be in this world? Um and, and I thought about that a lot early in sobriety. I was, I was, I was a pretty self-centered kid. And, and uh, I remember vividly remember the day where I had been picking this guy up from the rehab just to take him to meetings. And I just hated it, man. I didn't want to help anybody. I had no interest in any of this stuff. And I was doing it because they told me to do it. And then I had this change, this massive change where I woke up one day and I was like, I can't wait to hear about that guy's life and it never went away and and so find somebody that is has what you want find somebody that has not just the the outer stuff that's how i got my first sponsor this guy had a business card i was like oh he's great little did i know he was a crackhead who had been sleeping under his car because he figured out if you're sleeping under the car they won't rob you whereas if you're sleeping in the car they'll actually rob you uh and (laughs) man's still in my life to this day. Um, so I think this idea says we have to learn discretion. One of the things I try and teach people in treatment centers or just in my personal life, as it relates to people in recovery is a lot of people are in AA for stuff that maybe is outside the scope of AA. Um, and I think we all know this, but I, I would also say there's some shady characters there. And AA is not trying to police that in any way. They're not going to make a determination between somebody who's a sociopath and someone who's an alcoholic. Again, according to them, it's the person's own personal diagnosis. They have to believe they have that situation. Um I was a probation officer in drug court for about five years. I did all of the criminal justice. I got a degree in criminal justice because it happened to be the one that you could get while shooting heroin the easiest. Um, <laughs> but it did kind of prepare me for, for working in behavioral health. And, and, and when I became a probation officer, which was kind of perfect for me, I got to learn the technical research and skills behind addiction and recovery. Um, and one of the things that we, we learned about were things like antisocial personality disorder. Things like borderline personality disorder, things like severe recurrent persistent depression, uh, schizophrenia, uh, psychosis, which is not a technical term. And these people are in AA. People that are looking to take advantage of people are also in AA. Um, And there's some amazing, amazing people there. So the question is, how do I vet somebody in Tibetan Buddhism? If you were in a monastery to go back to that conversation, seven years, you're supposed to watch your teacher before you ask them to be your teacher. Seven years. I don't know if that's going to help anyone. Probably not. So this idea that says like, hey, what kind of person do you want to be? And then go find somebody like that. Uh, the New York Yankees cannot win the Super Bowl. It is the wrong sport. It is the wrong goal. They have to know about the World Series to win the World Series. So find somebody that knows about what it looks like to not drink or use drugs every day for a couple of years. And that they look like they are acting like and 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 living in a way that is um, enticing. Uh, inner, uh, from the inside, not from what they have on the outside. Um, yeah, I, I I think if somebody was early in recovery today, find the person that has what you want, do what you're told uh, addiction, substance use disorder, whatever we want, whatever word we want to use is predicated on the mind, it's on the brain, this is a brain condition, it's very clear, we can see it in, in the studies. Um and it will tell us things like that Lay's potato chip where it's just an, you know, another one won't hurt, right? You can't have enough, right? That kind of stuff. It'll say just just one more, right? Just one more. Everything's going to be okay. It'll say things like, you know, it's not a big deal, Nobody's gonna care. You'll quit tomorrow. Screw it, I don't care. I really don't. Um, I think how we combat that in the first year of sobriety is the, is the real challenge here um, the first year of sobriety sucks. I'm not going to make any uh, bones about that. We've been putting substances in our body to allow us to feel happier than we're supposed to be allowed to feel. And so can we find somebody where we can just show up every day? That is the hardest thing to do for that first year. After the first year, we can explore all of this other amazing stuff. I, uh, the final way I'll say this, the, the number one piece of it, well, I have a couple of pieces of advice for people in early recovery, but the number one example that I have been using for 10 years, I heard this at a training 10 years ago, and I have used it weekly since uh every client i've treated i try and ask them this i say i will give you one dollar today you can have one dollar right now or i will give you ten dollars a week from today which would you like and somebody says ten dollars and i say i'll give you 850 right now or ten dollars next week and they say ten dollars next week and i say i'll give you five hundred thousand dollars in cash you ever seen that kind of money i'll give you five hundred thousand dollars right now in a briefcase or I'll give you three million dollars in 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 thirty months in two and a half years. Which do you want? And people start to think about it. And they go, you know, I'll, I'll take the three million. And I say, all right. I just want to be clear. I just want to clarify what you're saying to me. You're saying that for the next two and a half years, thirty months, every time you get in the bus or you're in a car, or your car breaks down, or your dishwasher breaks, or you want to take that girl out on a date, or you want to donate to this charity, or you, you're all your friends are going skiing and you can't, you would say to yourself, you know, if I had just taken that 500 grand, I could have it. I could have all of it. But what is coming will be better. What is coming will be so much freaking better than a, than any 500 grand that I'm willing to suck it up. I'm willing to take what I think is important and put it over here on the shelf for a while and just go about my business. Cause what's coming is better. And they, they look at me and they say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I go, great. That's literally your whole recovery. Right. How do I take the things that I think in that first year of sobriety that are important and how do I put them over to the side and focus on staying sober? Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah. Yeah. Can we do that? Can, you know, and that's what, and then when I see him in the hallways, I go, Hey, take the $10. take the $10. <laughs> Everybody knows what I mean. I so, love yeah. it. I'd,
2: I'd like to circle back to something you said earlier that I think would be helpful for our audience. And that is, well, there, there was a gal that we interviewed right before this, her name was Natasha. And beautiful soul, beautiful lady is thriving in recovery, but certainly went through a dark time and, the thing she shared with us uh, was her grandpa and her grandpa never giving up on her to the point where he would put her name on his bank account so that she didn't get in trouble for stealing his money. Mm-hmm. And he, she said over and over, he never gave up on me, never gave up on me. And what you said earlier was that you could tell the difference between somebody that was going to make it or not make it in recovery. And so, how, what's the, and you've certainly seen a lot with 35 treatment centers being in over 800. What's the pattern? How, how can you tell if somebody's going to be successful with their recovery or not?
0: Can I tell a little story about the court system? Yeah. So in the in the 1960s and before, we had a policy in this country that um, can be referred to as the eye test. If you were a judge and somebody came up in front of you and the person uh, had a horrible drug or alcohol problem, the judge would look at them and they go, "Ah, you look like somebody that should go to treatment. You're white. That was what it used to be. Right. You look like somebody that should go to treatment. You get to go to treatment. And then somebody else would come up and they go, oh, you look hopeless. You look like you're not going to get better no matter what we do. So you ought to go to jail and discretion was left with the judges. Well, interestingly, they started studying this stuff in the 1970s and 80s, and what they found out was they were all wrong. And I think anyone that stays sober long enough or stays in recovery long enough will will find a pretty quick fallacy in the ability to predict, right? Uh, I'll never forget, I was one week out of treatment. I was in the sober house with this guy. We were driving to an AA meeting. His name is Matt K. And he looked right at me and he said, "Uh, you know, man, you are so interested and so engaged in recovery that if anyone's going to make it, it's going to be you. And I looked at him and I said, hey, man, you too, bud, like you're killing it. You're doing everything they suggest and you're not taking a day off here. And that guy died that weekend. And I mean, let me back up. Let me just say, if I had to, if I had to answer your question, for whatever reason, I've asked a lot of questions of a lot of people who are either sober or not sober. Did you have someone die in your first year that you knew personally? That's really important and i'm not saying it has to happen we are in the worst public health epidemic in american history we are losing a international jet plane full of people right 350 people a day for the last 4 years right alcohol we've been losing between 35,000 and 70,000 people a year since the 1970s right and so we have this massive 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 problem here and Sometimes the people who are least likely to get it do, and sometimes the people who look like they're going to get it don't. What I do know definitively more than anything else at this stage is substance use disorder. Addiction is a diagnosable, treatable condition of the brain. It is absolutely positively no different than cancer. Cancer can be in the brain. You can see it. So can addiction. You can see it. If you look at the process of reuptake on a PET scan of somebody experiencing cravings, you can literally see why I watched a mother one day. I had a woman years ago. She said, my husband chose to drink. And I said, Hey, Kathy, with all due respect, um, you ever see a woman who lost her fifth child uh, so that she keep drinking? And She said, no. And I said, well, I have. Right. I've seen that woman and I, and I i think something else is going on there than her choice to drink. I think there is something else happening. Right. A million years of evolution says that the strongest force uh, women can lift cars off of children. So maybe they could stop drinking if. It meant keeping their kids, but that doesn't work that way. This is a, so this is a diagnosable treatable condition. Uh, I say this to somebody every single day. I don't care what diagnosable treatable condition we're talking about. I don't care if it's acne or cancer or bunions or, or anything else. The answer is roughly the same. We have to find the right medicine. We have to find the right dose, and then we have to take the medicine until the symptoms get better period. And so This idea that somebody never gave up on somebody. Well, if anybody ever gives me any real money, I'm going to film a commercial. I'm going to do some billboards too, but that's a separate story. Uh, But I'm going to film a commercial and it's going to have that stupid TV show intervention where they sneak up on the guy right, or the woman and they they sneak attack them, which is fine. I do that kind of intervention. That's called the Johnson model. It's a thing. I'm not knocking it. It's for very specific situations, but I would juxtapose that with a meeting of oncologists meeting with a patient whose cancer came back. Would the oncologist ever treat somebody that way? Would we ever think of this as something to be ashamed of, right? This is a diagnosable, treatable condition in the brain, and it will only get better if you get more treatment. Uh, The most successful treatment in human history is pilots unions, the FAA. They keep you in treatment for a minimum of five years if you get caught drinking as a pilot in a bad way. And we know that this works. We know that drug court works. We know that forcing people to get treatment for long periods of time has, uh, has better outcomes. So I think this idea that says, well, can I be honest? I'm just going to be a little bit candid. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I haven't spoken to my father in a decade. He will die drunk. That's okay. I've made my peace with it. There are untreatable forms of cancer and there are untreatable forms of substance use disorder. And, It's not all easy choices, right? The decision to continue, the decision my mother did when she didn't send me to jail for stealing $20,000 from her, which I would still be in prison for in Connecticut, which would not be fun, versus helping me get treatment for a treatable condition, right? I was still responsible for my actions. That girl was still responsible when her grandfather was was putting her name on that account. Um, But there is something to the idea that says uh, I am going to continue to give somebody treatment and support them in the process of getting treatment. I may not be willing to watch them kill themselves, but I absolutely will. So what does this mean practically? And I'll just I'll end here with this piece is any treatment is better than no treatment. Um, Medication assisted treatment is great. Therapy treatment is great. Um, Psychedelic treatment is coming. That's great. I don't care. Uh, This is about finding the right medicine, finding the right dose and getting people to take the medicine until the symptoms get better. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it
2: certainly does. I've got a brother that uh, I'm 51. He's 50, 49 uh, soon to be 50 and he's living on the streets in Spokane, strung out on crystal meth and has been doing drugs since he was in high school. And he goes to jail and he gets out and gets right back on drugs. And, I love him. He's my brother, but I don't talk to him. And if he, I would help him if it was looking like you're saying, and he would take the medicine, but he just refuses. And so.
0: Can I, can I expand on that just a bit? Number one, I'm really, I'm sorry to hear. I I know personally, obviously how difficult um, that is. I would say I got a call a couple of weeks ago. And it was a mother and she had actually been watching that television show intervention and and she said my son's been homeless for the last 15 years and he uh, has been using meth for the last 10 and he shoots meth and he's been doing that for the last decade in and out of psych hospitals, and they just took his left arm from an abscess, Uh, but I want to do an intervention. Uh, the other call I get semi-frequently is my kid standing outside of Walgreens screaming about Jesus, asking people for their medicine. Um, and I want to get him treatment and he has Medicaid and we have no money. And I'm struck by this idea that says, I'm really sorry, but what your kid or your friend or your loved one needs doesn't actually even exist. Uh, my favorite question for people in America, in some regard is, what's the answer to addiction? I say, what do you think the answer to addiction is? And you know what nobody has ever told me? IOP. right? IOP stands for intensive outpatient program. It means three days a week, three hours a day of group therapy. And that is what insurance will pay for. When you go away, like Lindsay Lohan, every couple of years, she goes away to rehab for 30 days. That's called RTC. That's an insurance billing code. It's a standardized system of invoicing that allows treatment centers to bill insurance companies, which means that like treatment isn't even answering the question of how people get better. It's answering the question of how to bill health insurance. Like we don't even have a system that is predicated on trying to solve the problem. Did you know that uh, if you drink in the middle of treatment, Uh, and you tell them that they can get more days approved. There's a guy in New York years ago, he was giving drugs and booze to the clients because he wanted to get more days approved. He's giving them drugs. And so while I do think more treatment and doses of treatment and frequency of treatment and all of this stuff really matters, I would also say that there are some types of conditions that are not treatable. Uh, I would also say that there are, um, The system is not designed to solve this problem. It never really was. It's designed for short term, what we call touch points of care. You get to see somebody for a couple of days or maximum a couple of weeks. But the idea that like, I don't know, I ask a lot of people this, how many hours are in a week? There's 168 hours in the week and your brother spends 120 of them thinking about using meth or or recovering from meth. Well, guess what? An hour of therapy every week ain't going to fix that problem. In fact, going away for 30 days ain't going to fix that problem either. Do you know why rehab is 30 days? I've asked a lot of people this. Do you know why they picked that number?
1: I don't. I know because you told me, but do you know, Justin? I do not, know.
0: So I get two answers. Half the people tend to say that's because of what it takes to build a habit. The other half says because that's what insurance pays for. And they're not wrong. Uh, But the true story is that in 1962, the United States Navy set up the first government funded alcohol treatment program in America. It was on Long Beach Naval Base. And they had a policy that if you were unclassified from your post for 29 days or more, they had to reclassify you and train your replacement. So they made it 28 days. There's no empirical evidence anywhere on the face of the earth that you can shoot meth every day for 14 years and go away for 28 days and be right to like, nobody believes this. No, I've never met anyone, but yet we, when somebody is in crisis and they call a treatment center, that's what they ask. I want to go away and fix me. Right. And, and people sell them on the idea that they can do that. Um, so let, let me just finish those two thoughts. The first one is uh, a habit. A guy in the 1970s had a diet program in America, he said 21 days to a new you and he came up with this idea that if you want to make your bed every day without thinking about it you have to do it for 21 days that turned into 30 days which the rehab industry seemed to adopt that's a, a large pile of bullshit. Uh, The actual science on that says that it takes a minimum of four and a half months for your brain to build a new neuropathway. It'll take a minimum of four and a half months to hit homeostasis. Uh, I guarantee you, if you ask the treatment providers that you're going to talk to about the majority of their relapses, they will tell you it's between the 90 and 110 day mark. And it's because they're coming up on this four and a half month thing. The second one says, because that's what insurance covers. Well, the truth is insurance barely covers 30 days anymore. And that's based on medical necessity. And ultimately they don't even have any evidence. Their job is to save money. They have no evidence that that works either. So what do I do a lot of, we talk about ideas like access to care, right? If you have Medicaid, you have a problem. You have very little access to good care. I can tell you why that is, but ultimately the system is not designed to solve the problem as it stands. And what we have to do is build the types of resources that people like Bryce and myself were, were given in early recovery. These are large groups of people who are pro-social, who are... Uh, ethical people who want to be sober, and we want to support other people. We have to give people something for their mind to help them work on the trauma and the the brain. If they never thought about drinking or using drugs, they never would. Uh, And then we have to give them purpose. And I think everybody knows these things. I think this is the cornerstone of recovery. AA calls it unity recovery service. Unity is the people, recovery is the 12 steps, and service is service. And, and so we have this system in other places, and that's what we're trying to build for people. And so um, I'm sorry to hear about your brother. I would say that just trying to put one or two more little services in people's lives, right? One little thing, right? I know an hour of therapy a week isn't going to fix the problem, but maybe it can be the start of the process. There's a whole other body of research called uh, desistance theory, which says that over the life course, people will desist from delinquent behavior at some point, and that that is pretty trackable. And so the more choices we give people, the more opportunities to get off the highway, so to speak, right, more off ramps, the better chance they're going to have.
2: Thank you. What are you mentioned it a little bit ago? What are your thoughts on psychedelics and their role in treatment and recovery?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, So we've been uh, by we, I mean sort of industry folks kicking around this. We know it's coming. There's a law, a ballot measure coming in November in Colorado. There's uh, ballot measures all over the country. Multiple states have already decriminalized or, or, or to some degree legalized the use of psychedelics for treatment. Uh, I really like the bill in Colorado that is going up. It's called the Natural Medicine Cares Act, and the idea is that uh, people should have access to um, natural. Options The same as they should have access to pharmaceutical options. And so it is creating a series of uh, laws that will put the facilitation. Let me let me say this the right way. It'll put the use of psychedelics in the facilitation of mental health and behavioral health services as a another tool that you can get a license under the Department of Regulatory Affairs. And I like that. Um, I have a very good friend. His name is Ben Court. He wrote a book called Weed Inc. You guys should absolutely interview Ben. Uh, ben is not anti-marijuana, but if you, if you look him up, you'll think that he is the worst guy in the room because he hates marijuana, but he doesn't. Ben's concept, his platform is that cannabis is not bad inherently. Nobody should go to prison for cannabis. We all agree on this. It, and yet commercialization has challenges when anything is commercialized it's going to have certain challenges as uh bryce and i have talked about this but this idea of the 80 20 rule right so uh, the cigarette companies figured this out in the 50s and they literally wrote it down in a book and the idea was that if you have 10 people and 10 packs of cigarettes eight or i'm sorry two of the people will consume eight of the packs of cigarettes and the other eight people will consume two packs So you have a small group of people who are going overboard with this stuff. And then you have everybody else where it's quote unquote moderation. And the exact same thing has happened with cannabis. If you go look at YouTube and you type in dabs fail, F-A-I-L, there are thousands of hours of people having uh, psychotic episodes, uh, they're having um, horrible, horrible, horrible negative experience. Are they jumping off roofs? No. Okay. All that craziness from the 60s uh, is, is, is obviously gone. But the idea of high concentrate cannabis being made by a corporation and sold to the young adult developing brain is a really scary proposition. And so I think in terms of psychedelics, uh, we're going to see a couple of things. I think the first thing we're going to see is a rush. And I think there's a lot of people already who think that this is a panacea. Uh, I don't care if you take ayahuasca, ibogaine, DMT, psilocybin, LSD. I don't care if you take it every single day. It's not going to affect the fact that as a child, somebody got abused or neglected. Okay. Until we do the work, we will continue to want to numb out. And that more than anything else seems to be true. Uh, I do think the first couple of years, we will have a large group of people thinking that this is a panacea and my big fear remains that i mean it's the same thing i I feel like with um with cannabis right if you go into a dispensary like the guy always looks like the guy from the simpsons from comic book guy right and like oh this one's great for sleep man and this one's great for terpenes and it's like what what are we doing here man like no, no 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 licensed accredited trained people that this is one of many, many tools, right? If you don't drink water for four days, you're going to see something. You might go straight to the psych hospital. Uh, I can imagine that we're going to see that with the psychedelics. I can also imagine, and somebody wrote an article just the other day about this, that people who are in long term recovery are going to use it. Again, probably 90 plus percent of them will use it totally reasonably with a therapist. I just had a buddy in long term recovery get back two weeks ago, and it changes. Let's talk about the, the what they think the science is. They think that it it is neurogenerative. It helps people access parts of their brain that they couldn't have access to. I had a friend do a two week ketamine infusion on a uh, with therapists uh, a workshop, and he did two weeks. And I think they did seven or eight infusions. Um, ketamine not being particularly hallucinogenic, but having hallucinogenic properties. And this is a, a, a friend who could not make a decision in his life. And every single day he would wake up and agonize over this decision and he couldn't do anything about it for six months. And we all started saying, Hey man, is everything okay? This doesn't seem. And he went away and he came back and he was like a new person. He was like a totally different person. It allowed him to see the truth of his situation. Um, and so I do think it's going to have those possibilities. I do think you're going to see people get great benefits out of them. The last thing I will say about this is, um, There's a term in treatment called medication-assisted treatment. They call it MAT. Uh, Generally, this means suboxone and methadone, right? Opioid replacement therapy. Uh, I'm going to tell a really brief story, which is that in the early 80s and the mid-80s, all of these drugs were being studied in the UK. The early mid-90s, they're studying suboxone in Scotland and, and, and England. And all of the research that was done on these drugs was done in conjunction with a minimum of nine months of behavioral therapy. And when those drugs got to America, they chopped off the behavioral therapy part. And they were like, ah, you could just get the drug from your doctor. But it's like, that was never how it was meant to be distributed. It was never studied for that. The FDA unilaterally decided to do that. And so medication assisted treatment. Do I, somebody said this to me a a little while ago, 10 years from now, everybody will have psychedelics as an option, as another tool. There will be really good. Assessments for who is and who isn't appropriate, uh, but it'll just be another tool.
2: Seems like people are looking for the easy button, and you've mentioned, you mentioned it a couple times up front. And again, doing the work, and there's no shortcut to doing the work. I believe the psychedelics will help you do the work. Yep, you still have to do the work. You still have to do the work, man. And what do you mean by doing the work?
0: So that's a great question. Um, my personal journey um, is about childhood. And I think most people, as they get, uh, let me back up a little bit. Okay. The first year of sobriety, stay sober, no matter however you can do it. Right. If you got to, they used to say, sit on your hands, right? Just sit on your hands and don't let go. Right. And, and just stay sober year two is usually when people clean up the mess year three, they tend to take a a, 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 a risk. They move across the country. They get married. They travel to India. They move to Israel with a girl they met six weeks before, uh, <laughs> right. They do crazy stuff. Uh, years four, Four to, to sort of six are pretty stable for most people. And then usually in, in year five to eight, we start to see the first real emotional struggle for most people. They tend to hit this emotional plateau. And um, this is where you see people the first time start to blow their brains out or they relapse. Um, and so I think that there is a plateau within the traditional um, models of these things. And there's an old line that says, if you ain't growing, you're going. Right. And, and I, I do think that that is true. I think, like I said, at five years sober, I walked into dinner and I walked out going, Oh man. Right. Trauma is defined as any external experience, which overwhelms an internal coping mechanism. Could that be a car crash? Absolutely. Could it also be, I didn't get enough GI Joes for Christmas. I don't know. It depends on my ability to cope with those experiences. And so seven to most people do their first real I shouldn't say first, they do their second major round of healing, they clean themselves up in year two, but in years five to 10, they tend to do the second round of healing. And then you see people 10 to 15 is where people really do blow their brains out. Um, It's something I've been very, very noticeable of uh, in recovery, something happens to people, it becomes mundane, they forget what got them there, all that sort of stuff starts to happen. Um, Or or maybe they fall into depression. Um, The what I have learned is that I recreate patterns, right? Every time, every girl I ever dated was the same girl, different name, different, whatever, same, same family system, same traumas, same, right? Uh, every time I am afraid, I run. Every time I'm afraid, I attack, right? Whatever the pattern is. And that these four to seven patterns really facilitate all these different things in my life and and they create good and bad and and what has happened for me is that i've gone deeper and deeper into those things uh, as i've gotten sober and so when we talk about the work uh we have a therapist friend uh he says we're gonna get buck ass naked with each other emotionally uh and i you know i i uh hey man What do we all want, right? My buddy, Dan Griffin, if anybody's out there thinking about early sobriety, buy the book. It's called A Man's Way Through Healthy Relationships. Uh, He has an idea that he puts out there that he says, what are the rules of of recovery or what are the rules of being a man, right? And he'll do this in front of thousands of people and they'll say, don't ask for help. Don't be vulnerable. Don't talk about your feelings. Don't ever admit that you don't have all the answers. Judge yourself based on your sexual conquests, right? That kind of stuff. And then he says, what are the rules of recovery? And it's like, well, ask for help and judge yourself based on internal things and you know it's not about the car the job and the girl anymore in the sexual conquest and he literally says these things are they're they're at odds with each other right and men are taught from did you know little baby boys are rocked less than little baby girls right suck it up be a man don't be a and whatever the word at the end of don't be a it's always a woman right but really what it means is weak don't be weak Right, and yet here's the thing, right? Uh, do men want connection with their spouse, with their partner? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? Do we want to not be afraid? Yeah. Do we want emotional connection and vulnerability? Yeah. Has my wife told me when I try to be when when I was first experimenting with this uh, and being vulnerable with her in ways that I had never been? She would tell me that triggers her to make her want to tell me to not do that, to be a man? Because her programming even is so much, right? Dan says this thing in in his book, he says, two fish are swimming around and one fish says to the other, uh, hey, did you see the water today? And the other fish goes, what the hell is water? Right? And it's like, we're swimming in it and we don't even know it. It's constant. We are getting messages every single day, all day about what it means to be a man. And because of that, When we get into recovery, we really, really, really struggle. Did you know it was very common for men to cry in public before the 1900? Every Shakespeare uh, uh, play there is has a man crying in public, right? What is the only place in American society where we are as men like allowed to cry in public? It's the athlete, right? John Elway retires, right? Peyton Manning retires. He's crying at the press conference, right? The, The warrior coming home from battle, right? That kind of thing. But like, is it normal for men to cry? Yeah, yeah. If I told you that I was going to systematically repress a basic developmental function in children, you would say that that is trauma, right? I'm going to systematically repress a basic normal developmental function. And yet, is it normal for boys to cry when bad things happen? Yeah. And yet, do we systematically as a society repress that function? Yeah. Are all men, do women have the same, right? Do everything and make it look easy. Don't complain, right? That kind of stuff, right? So we all have this stuff. And so the work for me, again, uncover, discover, and discard, right? It's not the same. I'm not stealing 20 grand from my parents anymore, but am I being mildly, right? dishonest in certain parts of my life. Am I, um, You know, am I reacting or acting out in the patterns of my childhood over and over and over without any real awareness of those things? Um, And so last I'll say, the last piece of this is like, what is the work? The work is to become a more intimate, authentic, vulnerable, kinder human being, right? I want those things. I don't think they make me weak. In fact, they make me strong.
2: That's powerful. It's, uh, oh, goes against, go. It goes against what well, we've been systematically programmed since birth. I mm-hmm. was a real sensitive kid. I cried a lot, and I got made fun of, got teased. I, you know, and it, it that was my trauma. For well, there was other traumas, but that was a big part of it. And I had to unlearn that 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 that's not normal to to be treated that way for 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 crying.
0: Did you spend later on in life? Did you find yourself compromising your own values in order to be accepted by people?
2: Sure. Yeah. I had to be somebody else. I had to be somebody completely different than who I was. Yep.
0: Yep. And so we get sober and we get into this healing process and we start asking those questions about like, Oh, what is the programming here? And how do I deprogram it? Um, remember these things are, uh, they're, 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 they're designed to help us, right? These, these coping skills are helping us cope until they don't anymore. So yeah, my experience was exactly the same. I wore a mask and eventually again, uncover, discover and discard. Right. And um, and it's still hard. I still, my first reaction is still anger. Absolutely. Right. The coffee cup fell off the thing this morning and broke. And I started cursing and my wife texted me two hours later and she was just like, I don't know why you're blaming me for that. And I was like, I'm not blaming you, but I can see how it looks that way. Cause anger is still this coping mechanism for me. So yeah, that's where we go.
2: And the work never ends is what I'm finding. The work is the journey.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, every year I say, I'm not going back to that stupid place in Tennessee, that on-site workshop. I'm not doing it. And then it gets closer to the date that all the guy, all the people are going and we all like start texting and we're saying, I'm not going. And then like a month before everybody books their ticket. Right? We know we need to do it. We know we want to do it, but man, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. I haven't sobbed in the floor in the fetal position uh, since I was a child until I until I started going to those places, and and I, I will say, man, I honestly believe, like the con- the continued work in that way, like has definitely saved my marriage, saved my career, saved my friendships. Um, uh, the, the the normal recovery thing, that, you know, has never it always plateaus, right? It it was never designed to look at those parts of our lives, right? The early childhood messages, um, and so it's been the number one thing since about year six that has really propelled me. Can't recommend it enough
2: uncover discover discard I, I love it
0: it's amazing go look, go look up that guy his name is chuck chamberlain he wrote a book called a new pair of glasses chuck chamberlain was one of the first uh, i'll tell you how this works you want to know how this works my sponsor was was a guy named tim c his sponsor was peter b his sponsor was uh Don, donald madden who people know of donald madden's a, a historical guy his sponsor uh, was named guys named norm alpy his sponsor was chuck chamberlain and his sponsor was bill wilson right? And we can, and we can go back through these lines all the way back to the original people. And, uh, and yeah, they, they learned a few things, those guys. They definitely did.
2: And I think you said earlier, it's the same work. It's, it's, it it doesn't change. It's, it's, it's the same, the same ways that you got sober back then are still true today.
0: Find somebody that's got what I want and do what I'm told, man. Right. Like try and find humility, try and find the grace, try and, you know, keep helping people keep, you know, even when I don't want to, right? My wife and I, we have an agreement that we're, we're here to help people with substance problems. And there'll be times where I'm gonna spend, you know, I'm gonna leave the house at six o'clock in the middle of dinner. And, and we all agree that that's a valuable thing. Uh, last thing I can say on all of this stuff is, um, this is a diagnosable, treatable condition. If nothing else, if there's nothing else, right? This, this is a diagnosable, treatable condition. We gotta find the right medicine. We gotta find the right dose and we gotta te- keep taking that medicine um
1: yeah yeah well thanks to people like you man uh people are gonna have to i know i'm gonna have to go back and listen to this and i i've talked to you numerous numerous hours and you continually um share so much knowledge and information and your experience is awesome and you're gonna help so many people and i look forward to continuing to work with you and do projects with you and see where this goes man it's gonna be so awesome um but I encourage other, I encourage people to re-listen to this uh, a few times because there's so much packed in what you just said. Um, And, you know, I love that you just boiled it down to to uncover, discover, and discard. Um, You know, your authenticity is amazing. You're such an amazing dude. And I am just blessed to uh, get the opportunity to work with you and be your friend, man. So thank you so much for coming on here.
0: And same for you, man, and watch you grow and, 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 and take this journey to the next step. I mean, I, I, we say it all the time, this is additive and you keep adding stuff in. So this is the kind of thing. And, and Justin, it's been great to talk and, um, I'm looking forward to the next episodes to so listen to those myself.
1: Yeah, man, awesome. we're going to have to have you back on sometime too. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on. So appreciate you, man. You guys. Thank case. you, Cody. I
0: really appreciate the time. Guys.
1: Thanks.